Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks, public lands, and I guess like every other podcast right now, the war in Ukraine. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah. Normally we start with a little news update and then we get into the interview, but this episode is all news, so we'll jump right in. Obviously, we've got a whole lot to cover when it comes to oil and gas prices, the oil industry's call for more leasing and drilling on public lands, and how it all fits into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Joining us today is Jenny Roland Shea. She is the Deputy Director of the Public Lands Program at the Center for American Progress. Welcome back, Jenny. Hi, thanks for having me. And we've also got our Policy Director at the Center for Western Priorities, Jesse Prentice-Dunn, on the line. Good afternoon. Jesse, let's start with you. You briefed reporters on this a couple days ago. Give us the rundown on oil and gas leasing and production right now. What's the deal specifically with these 9,000 permits to drill that Jen Psaki keeps talking about during White House press briefings? That's right. Right now, the oil industry has uh, roughly 25 million acres of public lands leased for oil and gas. That's an area about the size of Kentucky. Um, On those leases, oil companies hold more than 9,000 approved but unused drilling permits. These are permits that they could use today to speed up the production of oil. Uh, But as I'm sure we'll dive into, uh, it seems that oil companies are more interested in looking out for uh, the benefit of their investors than they are looking out for everyday Americans feeling the pain at the pump. All right. So a few more things to just clarify for everyone listening so that everyone knows what we are talking about here. What is the difference between a drilling lease and a drilling permit? Because those are two words that sometimes get tossed around interchangeably, but they are really not. Good question. So a lease uh, gives a company the right to drill on a certain area of land. Uh, It essentially gives them rights to the oil and gas beneath the surface. And when they want to access that lease, they need to get a drilling permit. And that makes sure that they're um, following all the the appropriate environmental regulations. They've got all the um, the safeguards in place. Uh, So those are kind of the two steps in that process. So the 9,000 permits, that stuff that is ready to go, put a drill bit in the ground tomorrow if you want, versus permits, how many are there? And and Jenny, you touched on this in, in one of CAP's pieces this week. Is the industry running short on permits or leases? No, as Jesse mentioned, they have already about 26 uh, million acres leased. About half of that is under production, um, which means there is still about half of the acres already leased that they can start producing on. And that's only onshore. Um, offshore, there's another 9 million acres that are under lease but not being used. Uh, CAP did an analysis last year that found that those unused leases add up to at least 10 years worth of unused leases that they just have at their disposal. And that's assuming they keep drilling at the rate that they're drilling today? Exactly. And Jesse, uh, in when you talk about oil and gas in the U.S. overall, how does public lands oil and gas fit into that overall picture? Well, the ballgame is really on private lands. Only about 7% of U.S. oil production comes from public lands, uh, predominantly in the West. Similarly, about the same stat for natural gas, a little more from offshore. But I I think the take-home message here is Joe Biden does not have a magic oil spigot when it comes to public lands. uh, Most of these oil companies are producing on private lands around the country. And if 
oil and gas companies wanted to start producing on these public lands permits that they have already. Could they do that quickly? What's the what's the lead time? Well, these are permits that are already approved. They can use today, tomorrow, yesterday, whatever you think. I think the important thing to note here is that the limiting constraint on drilling in the United States is not access to public lands or permits. It's financing. It's things like frac sand. It's things like labor and drilling crews. And so this is a a problem of the oil industry's own making rather than some policy crisis that we have to address. Right. So on that point, we had Brad Handler from the Colorado School of Mines on the press briefing as well. And he sort of explained why oil companies aren't drilling more right now, even though they could, as we just heard, drill um, on plenty of our public lands. I'll play a little clip from him here and you can hear it um, straight from Brad. Oil companies have pulled back pretty hard for the last year and a half, even as they've climbed out of the pandemic you know, drop, complete drop in activity that you see reflected in early 2020. The spending behavior is remaining disciplined. What do I mean by discipline? Well, in this case, what companies are saying is that they'll spend about 20% more in 2022 than in 2021. But a good amount of that, let's call it 15% or so, of the 20% is, is directed at offsetting inflationary pressures. So in other words, companies will spend relatively little on pursuing growth, but are instead trying to maintain production at this point. What they are also telling investors is that they will give at least half of the money that they earn in excess of maintaining their productive base back to investors. So they're in this promise of capital discipline. We we will not pursue growth. And so what that leaves is this interesting scenario because oil companies are on the one hand, or at least some of the industry advocates are saying, on the one hand, we have somehow constrained in what we can do and, and the government needs to help us out. But in fact, the constraints are coming from the investor base themselves um, and oil companies are simply responding to that. So- Jenny, we keep hearing some conservative talking points that the Biden administration is vehemently anti-oil and gas, that they are somehow preventing uh, this this production. Is there anything that President Biden could do to prevent these approved permits from producing? Or in the flip side, is there anything the president could do to force oil and gas companies to start using these permits and, and start producing more oil? Yeah, I mean, right now, this problem is clearly at the feet of the oil and gas industry. They have these permits that we know are ready to go, and they're just asking for more leasing and more per- more permits to be approved, which none of which can happen on a timeline that would do anything right now. From a lease sale, it takes at least four years on average to get uh, oil pumping. And so, you know, this is really on the plate of the oil and gas industry. So I think that gets us to what the industry is doing and what the industry is saying. One of the things I've noticed this week especially is what they are saying to reporters, especially at this uh, this big conference that's been happening in Houston, Sarah Week, what they've been saying about the Biden administration is very different than what they have been saying to their own investors on earning calls, Jesse. That's right. You point a good uh, uh, distinction point here, which is the law. 
And when it comes to the press and when it comes to lobbying, oil and gas companies are free to say that they are, uh, you know, in between a rock and a hard place and they need more lands to drill. But when it comes to actually talking to their investors and SEC regulations, they have to tell the truth. And what they're telling to their investors is they have no plans to ramp up production. And instead, now that they're seeing windfall profits, they are looking to buy back their stocks, increase dividends, and look out for investor return. And, you know, I I keep coming back to this thought that the oil and gas industry is really good at lighting natural gas on fire, flaring, venting, you name it. They are also really good at lighting money on fire. And they, (laughs) they have dug themselves a massive hole on their balance sheets. And now their financial backers and the banks and investors, they want their money back. And that's where the money's gonna go. So this takes us back to the the shale boom. I saw a guy who works in the industry on TikTok talking about how, oh, production in New Mexico is nowhere like it was back in 2013, 2014. And I'm like screaming back at TikTok. Well, yeah, that's because you all went bankrupt in 2013, 2014. Is, is that the ultimate lesson here? Is everything that drove oil prices down to $30, $40 a barrel the oil companies are not going to repeat that again. Well, just to almost take it to a higher level, the oil and gas industry and the extraction economy at large is a boom and bust industry. Communities that depend on it will see good times and they will see see incredibly bad times. Uh, That's what we're seeing now. And so I think what's incumbent upon all of us is, you know, right now to weather this international crisis and make sure that we're coming out in a better place. And so that's uh, looking towards more renewable energy, trying to electrify a lot of our transportation, trying to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels so that we we aren't just uh, at the whim of, of a lot of these extractive industries that, again, are looking out for their investors more than they are for average consumers. And I think it's worth noting at this point that, you know, these are all the same arguments that happened in 2008, the last time that gas prices were really high. And we have since doubled oil production since then. And we are still in the same spot with the same problems because we're relying on an energy source that is volatile. And so, as Jesse just said, that transition is really the only solution in the long term. Yeah, you know, just just for fun, as I want to do, I was going back and looking at uh, letters from the American Petroleum Institute to various presidential administrations, and that's an interesting definition of fun, Jesse. Uh, well, it's a Friday. Here we are, um, and they are all the same. Um, the letters that the API has sent to the Biden administration, the Trump administration, the Obama administration—they all call for the same thing. Open, opening more lands and waters to leasing, speeding permit approvals, trying to reduce environmental regulations. This is the same policy playbook. And um, depending on who you attribute the quote to, they're channeling their inner Winston Churchill, JFK, you name it. They never <laughs> want to let a good crisis go to waste. And here they are. And I guess that gets us to something Jenny put out on the Arctic and this could be a very easy climate win for the Biden administration. Walk us through what's at stake in the Arctic right now, Jenny. Yeah, this is about the ConocoPhillips Willow Project um, in the Western Arctic that is a project that was 
uh, approved originally by the Trump administration and then was overturned by a federal judge in Alaska that struck down the approval, citing serious concerns um, with the environmental review for not taking into account climate change or um, the effects on polar bears or any of the less harmful plan alternatives. So this is a project that um, would call for massive new infrastructure in the Arctic, you know, 250 wells, 37 miles of roads, miles of pipelines, airstrips. Um, and this project now, it ha- the fate of it lies with the Biden administration. It, you know, in terms of carbon impact um, is just huge. Uh, we did an analysis that found that it would result in double the carbon pollution uh, than all of the renewable progress that the Biden administration is making would save on public lands and waters by 2030. Um, so this is really just a huge climate disaster if the Biden administration lets it go forward. And so, you know, I think it's really one of these legacy decisions of what what is the net what is the future of the next 10 years of energy going to look like? And and this is obviously all related and choosing to um do that project would would be disastrous, but I think there's a real opportunity and a climate win, as you said, to to not allow those permits to go through. And I suppose right on time, uh, we hear that there has been a, an ongoing now week long natural gas leak at a ConocoPhillips facility on the North Slope in Alaska. Uh, ConocoPhillips has not been able to figure out where it's coming from or shut it down. Uh, there is a native Alaska village with 500 people right next door and dozens of families are leaving right now because they don't know where this natural gas is coming from. And this stuff, as we've seen for decades, going back to the Valdez, ecological disasters involving oil and gas in the Arctic are devastating and very hard to clean up. Yeah, that's right. And I think it underscores the need for a transition that we were just talking about. I, I kind of wanted to take this back to right now, it feels like we're, we're being almost held hostage by the oil and gas, gas industry. We need oil to, to fuel our gas tanks. Uh, we need natural gas to heat our homes. But that's not what it's always going to be like. And the economy and businesses are moving that way. Uh, just last month, uh, we saw the largest ever energy auction by the Department of the Interior, and it wasn't oil and gas, it was wind. Almost $4.4 billion uh, for wind leases off the Atlantic coast. And that's more than 23 times the revenue brought in um, than when the, the Interior Department just tried to lease the entire Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas. So the economy is moving in a more renewable direction. That's a more uh, stable direction for our economy and for the global economy. So I, I think this is not all doom and gloom. There's some hope there. Um, and, and it's another reason why we don't just have to kind of stand by and listen to industry talking points. Jenny, do you, do you think there's a chance that we come out of this and as a nation with a, a renewed resolve, recognizing that we, we just can't keep repeating this boom bust, oh, someone please drill more? Uh, cycle. Yeah, I think we're at a crossroads. You know, I, any infrastructure, energy infrastructure that we're investing in now is not going to do anything tomorrow. It is for what we're doing five, 10 years from now. And so I think Jesse's right. You're right that we 
could see a real turn of long-term investments to get us off oil so this doesn't become a problem or continue to be a problem, I guess. Um, You know, the conflict in Ukraine has had exactly zero impact on the price of wind or the price of solar. So both are becoming much cheaper and more readily available. So I think that's where we need to go to kind of end these shockwaves caused by oil and gas once and for all. And just just to build on that, maybe, as I mentioned, it's Friday, I'm feeling hopeful, but I wanted to mention that uh, many Western states and communities are already uh, taking the reins and running with it. We've seen states like Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico implement policies to transition towards clean energy to make sure that the impacts of oil and gas development have been lessened. This is not just a federal problem. It's taking all of us and all of our collective action. And so I I think that's an important point to make, that we don't have to be bystanders and we can influence uh, policies and things where we live. Uh, And it's making a difference. So it sounds like what we have been talking about as the long term, the energy transition, it sounds like that long term is becoming more of a medium term that if if this all just accelerates faster and that at the end of the day, I guess, means more electrification of cars and renewable energy uh, generation, that that ends up being a great thing overall. It still creates this short term problem, especially if you're uh, someone on, on a fixed income, lower income, who has trouble putting gas in your car to get to work. Is there a short-term fix right now? And if so, who has the policy levers or the business levers to just lower the price of gas in the short term? Well, look, not going to beat around the bush. The price of of gas and the price of oil are set on a world market. It's tough to influence. That's going to be influenced by global uh, events. However, um, the Biden administration has tools to make sure that oil companies aren't price gouging, that oil companies are not getting all of these windfall profits where investors see a return, but consumers don't. And that's what we need to be looking out for right now to make sure um, everyday Americans aren't feeling the pain while oil CEOs are reaping in record profits. So that's one. Uh, Number two, I I think it's important to note that just within the last couple of weeks, the Biden administration set standards to make our cars cleaner and more efficient, run further on a gallon of gas while we electrify. So progress is being made. Um, it, you know, it, it will happen at a certain pace, but there are things we can do now to make sure that this crisis isn't just benefiting oil CEOs while we all pay the price. Yeah. And I'd add to that just that, you know, we need also to not rush into false solutions that the calls coming from the oil and gas industry, that we need more leases, we need more permits, that those are all false solutions and will only lock us into more fossil fuels. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're not going in, in the wrong direction as well. Um, and then, yeah, as Jesse said, that in terms of short term solutions, focusing on Um, You know, the oil and gas industry has really just sat back and got richer and richer um, as people have been really struggling. Um, And so there's, I think, some things coming out of the Biden administration, some creative ideas potentially coming out of Congress to, you know, look at how um, those windfall profits could maybe be used for the people and invested in a way that helps consumers uh, rather than just lining the pockets of uh, big oil. Which is to say some sort of windfall profits tax or, or moving that around in some way? 
Exactly. And just to, to belabor Jenny's point, um, you know, the oil industry is asking us to make knee-jerk reactions here to expand permitting, expand leasing. If you go in and look at the data about oil and gas leases producing on public lands, some of these date back to the 1940s and 1950s. What they're asking us to do right now is to lock in another 70 or 80 years of drilling and carbon emissions. And that is just irresponsible. So uh, I think it shines a light on their cynical playbook. Uh, and it's a it's a false choice, as Jenny said. I think there was a, an interesting moment this week a, in the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee where you had a, a senior vice president of Shell testifying and Senator Mike Lee asked her to elaborate on the Biden administration's pause on oil and gas leasing and whether that had an effect on gas prices. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, she told the truth while testifying before Congress, uh, as you are supposed to do. Uh, this is uh, Colette Hurstius uh, testifying uh, on Thursday. So with regard to lease sales, um, and, and has, it, uh, has, it, has it raised the cost to consumers? Um, I, I do not think that not having lease sales has raised the cost to consumers. That is uh, about as straightforward as it gets. Other than that, anyone here, uh, have you seen any valid points from either the industry or from conservative commentators this week? Is there anything worth taking into account going forward in terms of what the solution is or what the problems are right now that have caused gas prices to spike like this? You know, I, I was thinking about this earlier today, and the industry's arguments that they don't have enough leases or permits, they need, they need more, just makes my head explode. I mean, we've had over a century of policy essentially geared towards expanding the oil and gas industry to lining their pockets. Um, and upon even the shallowest rev of review, it all falls down. It doesn't make sense. So um, I think the short answer, Aaron, is no. I, <laughs> I think the oil industry realizes they are in, in a, um, a vulnerable position here. Um, their arguments don't have much merit, and they're kind of grasping at straws, just pulling out the same old arguments. Jenny? Fully echo uh, what Jesse just said. Well, I do have a question, um, which is that, and I've seen some folks saying this, not necessarily oil and gas companies, but um, you know, a lot of the technology we need to expand renewable energy requires elements that we currently get from Russia. So what about that little speed bump? Like, what's the answer there? It's a valid point. I mean, we, we very clearly, uh, as we electrify, as we increase renewables, we need more, uh, an increased supply of minerals. Um, I, I think this is, is where it really shines a light on our public land management. We need to make sure that we are looking out for all Americans in a balanced way, that we identify places that are good for mining, good for drilling, but also places that are good for conservation, recreation, looking out for local communities. And that when we try to go forward with some of these processes, we do it gathering public input. I mean, we just went, went through four years of the Trump administration where they tried to rubber stamp essentially every drilling permit 
every mining application and so forth, trampling over what communities wanted. So I, I think it's unavoidable that we need to have more uh, mining for critical minerals, but we need to do it in the right spots with the right practices. And so I think it's uh, it's critical to have that system in place that accommodates the needs of all our communities. And I just tack on to that, that it's another situation where you don't, you know, just want to take the mineral or the, the companies that will profit off of it at face value of we need to mine everywhere right now. Um, you know, looking at responsible recycling, remining, uh, reuse, uh, those are all things that will need to be taken into account and kind of a plan needs to be made. I think, again, the critical minerals issue is not going to hold up uh, renewable energy development tomorrow. This is something that we need to, as we plan for our energy future, uh, take into account. And I'll point to a conversation we had on this podcast with Trout Unlimited back probably 18 months ago. Uh, they put out a report called A Path Forward on Critical Minerals, uh, laying out a framework for how to mine responsibly, identify the places where you can do it safely, calling out in particular, obviously, the boundary waters as a place where it is not safe, but there are others where, where it may be. And at that time, 18 months ago-ish, uh, there was not a, a, an agreement, I think you'd say, among the broader conservation community about what that would look like. And now even this week, you see groups like the Center for Biological Diversity, who are pretty far on the on the progressive side, echoing that of saying, yes, there are ways to do this responsibly. And the only way to get off oil is to is to mine more. And so let's talk about where it ha needs to happen and how it needs to happen. Uh, so I guess maybe that's another encouraging sign coming out of this is uh, an acknowledgement that that is part of the path forward and probably going to have to happen quickly so that we are not dependent on uh, on some of these Russian critical minerals uh, to say nothing of Russian uranium and nuclear power, which is a whole other thing we probably don't have time to get in today on this podcast and the quality of uranium coming out of Russia versus say Northern Arizona. Uh, but boy, there's a, there's a whole lot to unpack there in the future. Yep. <laughs> Anything else here before we go gang? I guess at this point, it, we we should point out that the Biden administration is reviewing the mining, uh, the 150 year old mining law that currently governs mining on public land. So they actually are taking action on this issue. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that review. Just to note, I mean, Kate, Kate's point, the mining law dates from 1872, 150th anniversary this year. The law governing oil and gas is from 1920, over a century old. It is beyond time to reform some of these practices, these laws that were basically built to develop and industrialize the West. Um, they're not looking out for communities. They're not looking out for taxpayers. So uh, it, it's high time that those are changed. And I guess maybe if there is any upside then to all of this, uh, it, it would be a wake-up call to Congress that, yeah, t time to reform 1872 mining, time to reform the Mineral Leasing Act. Uh, we hear industry want, talking about the need for regulatory certainty. Well, that's what Congress can provide above all else, right? That's right. And I, I, I'm going to stop talking after this, but I go back to the wind energy auction off the coast that generated $4.4 billion. 
the oil and gas industry has always said that they're providing funding for schools and roads and local communities around the country. Well, guess what? The renewable industry is producing even more revenue now on an ongoing basis. And we need to make sure that that's put to work for our states and cities and communities. And so I think a more sustainable future is possible, not just for the climate, but for all of these budgets that have been held hostage by a boom and bust cycle in extractive industries. So uh, we've got that to look forward to. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, as you were talking about some of these, you know, long needed reforms to the oil and gas program is that, you know, there is, a package that already passed the House, um, that pieces of which could pass the Senate soon, that has a lot of these uh, reforms to the oil and gas industry in it. It has a package of clean energy investments in it that I think folks found would lower the price of uh, consumers' gasoline spending by 25% over the next decade. So there are things moving and, and options there as well. Well, I'll put in a call to Joe Manchin's office, see if we can't get the senator on here next week to clarify that and get the ball rolling. Uh, all right. Jenny Roland Shea, Jesse Prentice Dunn. Thank you both for joining us here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Now for some good news, a proposed quote hydrocarbon highway through the book cliffs in Eastern Utah is no longer on the table after the 35 mile road project was voted down in committee last week. The Bookcliffs Highway, as it's referred to in Utah, has been in the works for decades. Original, originally, it was proposed to move oil out of the Uinta Basin down to I-70, but more recently, the folks behind it have rebranded it as a tourism highway that would connect Dinosaur National Monument in northern Utah to Arches National Park in Moab in the south. But the thing is, it wouldn't have actually made the trip any shorter, so it was pretty obvious it was about moving oil all along. The death of this project is great news for many other reasons as well. It would have bifurcated some of the best big game habitat in Utah, as well as gone through a canyon with tons of rock art, both by the Ute tribe and early European explorers. Not to mention, displaced a couple who lived in the canyon. But it's not all good news, because the project has died and come back to life at least twice before. So until they stop pumping oil out of the Uinta Basin, there's always a chance it will return. And that will do it for this episode. Uh, hey, if any of Joe Manchin's staff is listening, I-, I was serious. Call me. We will get the senator on here. It will be a great conversation. Uh, everyone else, please let us know what you think about the podcast. Leave us a review wherever you are listening to this, because that is the best way for Senator Manchin's staff to discover this podcast and get the senator on here. Uh, you can also send us an email with any suggestions, podcast at westernpriorities.org. I'm Aaron Weiss. And I'm Kate Gretzinger. On behalf of all of us here at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks so much for listening to The Landscape. Mm-hmm.